0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, your Ben Jarowski show for Wednesday, no, uh, October 13th. It's just moments away, but before we do this, let's take our sponsors. Sponsors like SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, our sponsors. The Chicago Teachers Union. It's true. They're sponsors. And Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, drink, and eat, or whatever, and so much more. Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com. Subscribe. Check out Ben's weekly column at the Chicago Reader. And if you want to help out this program, you can. chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky, and you can be a binhead head. That's chicagoreader.com forward slash J-O-R-A, V is in victory, S-K-Y. It is Wednesday, October 13th, and live from my apartment and his Airbnb in Los Angeles, California, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, legendary Chicago journalist Monroe Anderson and the long-awaited return of Tracy Bain of the Chicago Reader. Now, your host, rumor has it he bought a surfboard. He's really liking California. (laughs) Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Uh, uh, Hello, everybody. (laughs) Uh,
1: That's hilarious. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. Hang (laughs) Tang. Cowabunga. I do. I do enjoy watching guys surfing. It's true. But the notion of me in a surfboard is so preposterous that I'm laughing. And they got these like mini surfboards. You've seen those, D? What do they call those? You know, um, boogie board? I, yeah, boogie board, I believe. Yeah. Oh my God. There was a guy doing a boogie board the other day. Uh, you know, I was in Malibu, man, hanging out in Malibu. Did I tell you it was at Malibu? And he's on his boogie board. I was so jealous. Monroe Anderson is joining us. I love it when Monroe Anderson shows up. Monroe Anderson, by the way, very good on a surfboard and a boogie board. Uh, he's a California guy. Uh, we'll be down here, you know.
2: <laughs>
1: but wait a minute. You made me laugh. I, I went on a tangent. I uh, I just want to say today's show, happy anniversary, reader. All right. Yeah. That's the uh, like the little sounds, the party sounds.
0: Sorry, Um, couldn't hear it over the sounds of Monroe watching TV and it being (laughs) on the show. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Oh, he's my favorite part of the show where Monroe comes on and he's got MSNBC on. Uh, And uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so it's the the reader's 50th anniversary. uh, And Tracy Bame will be coming on the show. uh, Reader publisher, uh, co-publisher, I should say, Tracy Bame, an old friend of Monroe's, will be on the show uh, later. We'll be talking a lot of reader stuff and Harold Washington stuff. We're all feeling the vibe from the 70s and the 80s. Uh, and we were all there, Tracy Monroe and myself, so we'll have a lot to talk about in the future yeah. of journalism, et cetera, uh, and so forth. And of, uh, what's that?
2: Speaking of historical figures, Tim Black died today.
1: Oh, no. Yeah. I did not know Tim Black, yeah. legendary civil rights activist, teacher, yeah. and uh, historian, right. brilliant man.
2: Right, 102. One
1: wow 102 years old god bless you tim black yeah. uh yeah tim black man he uh he started off as a high school uh english teacher i want to say at hyde park academy or was hyde park high school back in the day uh, a long time ago. Wow, I did not know that. So uh, I well, saw that he was. It's
2: news. Uh, it yeah. means today he <laughs> died. Yeah. <laughs>
1: As in breaking news. Uh, so anyway, my uh, condolences to Timberlake's family. What a great uh, uh, Chicago. I, I have to say this. Uh, before I get to uh, Monroe, Monroe, you'll appreciate this. This is Frank out there uh, in Listerland. I was wondering what it was that you sent me that I had to talk about. Now I, I remembered. Uh, the Jeb Bush guacamole bowl. And <laughs> Monroe, yes, Jeb Bush and his wife have their own guacamole bowl, uh, which they are selling on the Internet for $75. So you can buy one yourself. And I'm like, I don't know. The Bushes should just go away. You know what I'm
2: saying? <laughs> no one likes the Bushes. They they, they hadn't gone away. <laughs> I thought they were gone already. <laughs>
1: I, I yeah you could be yeah it's easy to think that uh, but I mean just this is, was so preposterous that uh, they're peddling their bowl and uh, I guess everybody's trying to sell something seventy five dollars for a Jeb Bush guacamole bowl I'm not sure why anybody would pay a nickel for anything for Jeb well, Bush speaking what
2: a, of politicians <laughs> going away now you know Bill Clinton had a uh, a a, a best selling novel. Uh, with a, f- a famous writer,
1: yeah, James Patterson,
2: yeah, right. And now Hillary has a book, a novel coming out with um, one of these best selling writers. Her name is something Penny, African. yeah, Louise Penny, yeah, yes, Louise Penny, yes, yes. So maybe no, we, ought I, to write, uh... we ought to write a novel together, bit, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Let me just tell you something, as perhaps, uh, one of the few people in the universe who's actually read uh portions i had, i cannot claim to have read the entire bill clinton the first one that came out was utterly dreadful and uh oh the novel so, yes the oh, bill yeah, clinton yeah. novel first of yeah. all i memoirs by ex presidents are pretty dreadful right i'm just telling you that right now they rewrite history uh mm-hmm. they edit out the good stuff they make themselves look super great <laughs> They try to twist and turn all the negativity, Monroe, into positive things. Uh, I've taken, I've read through Richard Nixon's, Bill Clinton's, Barack Obama. Uh, who else? I, I did not, I could not bear uh, George Bush's. He wrote one, too, believe it or not. And um, I think Gerald Ford wrote one as well, which I didn't read. I've read some of Jimmy Carter's, but Bill Clinton's novels are horrible. Absolutely horrible. And I read, you'll get a kick out of this. I read uh, a review about Hillary's uh, novel and unlike Bill, Bill doesn't get quote unquote political. He like, he doesn't use the novel to settle scores necessarily. (laughs) According to the article I read, Hillary Clinton goes after a certain Donald John Trump.
2: Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah. Oh no, if he dies before she does, she will sneak in the the graveyard and piss on his grave (laughs) before it's over.
1: Well, to a large degree, she has her husband. Uh, I know we weren't going to talk about this, but she has her husband to blame for the debacle of losing to Donald Trump in 2016, even though, as I like to point out, she actually won the election. She got more right. votes than Donald Trump. We have right. an insane system of picking presidents. I always want to say that. That's right. a very important point that I always want to make. She effectively won and lost. <laughs> Very interesting system we have. Uh, If we did that system, as I like to point out, Monroe, in football, uh, the Oakland Raiders would have been victorious on uh, Sunday because they scored less points than the Bears. So if we'd had the same system for football. If we had that
2: system, the Sox would still be in the playoffs.
1: Yes, the Sox would be advancing uh, to play the Boston Red Sox. Uh, actually, they would be uh, advancing to pe- play the Tampa Bay Rays because Tampa Bay would have won by losing. So, yes, uh, very strange uh, system we have. But uh, uh, it, we'll save the, the Clinton talk for another time. Clinton's are on my mind a lot these days because I've been watching impeachment uh, on um, the impeachment show on, on Hulu. All right, Monroe, let's talk about a combination of race, politics, uh, and football. Uh, it's something I'm really eager to talk about because I find it so profoundly disturbing on many levels. And, uh, you, we already had a little talk about this before the show and you said, why are you surprised? Right. I, you know, and, uh, what could I say? Uh, John Gruden, the former coach of the Oakland Raiders. John Gruden, the former uh, TV personality on uh, Monday Night Football. John Gruden, a fabulously wealthy uh, white man who's benefited uh, from his co- contacts with football to become fabulously wealthy and successful, uh, had to step down. I don't know if my listeners follow sports in any way, but I'll just give this a little summary. He had to step down after the New York times, uh, uncovered scores of emails that he had written over the years, Monroe from approximately 2011 to 2018 to a friend of his, who was a high ranking official with the Washington football team, a team that used to be known as the Redskins. I'm not making this up folks. This is football in America. And, um, they, uh, in those emails, uh, John Gruden ran it and railed against black people, gays, women. Uh, am I leaving anybody out, uh, Monroe? I think that I'm pretty much I'm covers.
2: Black, let's see. Black women, gays. I think it, that covers
1: that. That covers anyone. He showed him to be, himself to be a total ass, a bigot, a racist, a homophobe. Uh, and this was the secret side. A what? A misogynist. A misogynist. This is the secret side of a very public man. At the time he was writing these emails, so he was one of the most popular personalities on uh, TV uh, because he was a color commentator on Monday Night Football. And so it, it's just so disturbing on so many levels to me, Monroe, that he could like, be allowed to slip through life with this like double life. The public, John Gruden, who's bringing in millions of dollars, and he made millions, Monroe, millions of dollars. Uh, And then the secret John Gruden, who's a freaking racist. Your thoughts?
2: Well, he said he wasn't, just for the record. He said he was not a racist. (laughs) I I, I guess his thinking was that um, he didn't particularly uh, mind niggers, But but sometimes he has something not nice to say about us.
1: Well, let me just explain where he said he uh, was not a racist. The way this story developed, uh, the first uh, article to break about John Gruden's secret email was in the Washington, excuse me, the Wall Street Journal about a week ago. And it was just one email. Yeah. So the NFL has been doing an investigation of the Washington Redskins. That was their old name. Washington Redskins, the Washington football team. and
2: uh, Who the owner uh, fought long and hard to keep the name Redskins. Although every um, Native American in the United States said it was offensive to them. Uh, You know, it's... It would be like if if it was the Washington Color to the song.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Daniel Snyder uh, dug in his heels on that one. Very bizarre fight that he was having there. I almost, in some levels, he was he was more at least open about his bigotry, right? uh, Than John Gruden. So in a weird way, it's almost I don't know.
2: No, the the difference is Gruden needed the approval of the powers that be to do his show. Whereas uh, the owner of the Washington Redskins had the money and didn't have to listen to anybody and didn't have to worry about it. People were going to go or watch his game, his team play, whether they liked it or not. Except time finally caught up with him where he was forced to change he was because here. we are in changing times
1: Well, we'll talk about how much changing times we are in a little bit, uh, because this all connects to Trump and the politics, uh, as you pointed out when we were chatting before the show. Yeah. So anyway, just one more time. So the Wall Street Journal uncovered. So there's this investigation by the National Football League uh, into the work uh, environment of the Washington football team. And as a result of that investigation, they got access, the NFL investigators, the National Football League investors got access to over 600,000, Monroe, 600,000 thousand internal email of washington redskins employees and yeah. in those emails they discovered the the messages that john gruden who did not work for the washington uh redskins but was friends with one of the chief officers for the washington redskins uh, had sent to his friend alan that's his friend's name so gruden they found gruden's emails in that batch of emails that had gone to the head of the Washington Redskins And in one of those emails He made some very disparaging mar- remarks About the, the uh, uh Smith Who is the head of the Players Association uh, He made um, some racial uh, slurs Regarding uh, uh, his lips
2: yeah.
1: And that it was the email that was presented that was unveiled I think on Friday or Thursday of last week just before the Raiders played the Bears and that's where Gruden got up and he said I don't have a racist bone in my body which right. is such a bizarre thing to say like, right. what is a racist bone you know what I'm saying Monroe yeah. what is a racist bone
2: a cliche that's what it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: it's, so that he said that they <laughs> played the game, their team was really flat. The Bears beat them, which is a black
2: America. the black quarterback kicked their butt.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's correct. Justin Fields of the Bears kicked their butt. And uh and then the next day, the New York Times somehow or other got access to a whole bunch of other emails that were not originally reported, in which he made uh, slurs against gays and women and more racial slurs took a hard shot at players who had Eric Reed, who had taken the knee you know made disparaging remarks about uh, protesting football players and really exposed himself at greater length and That was so embarrassing to football that he was forced to step down so I don't know if he's still clinging to that "not a racist bone in my body" line that he was using from last week, since all these new emails have come out. Do you know what I'm saying? He may want to update. Well, I I suddenly discovered a a racist femur uh, that I did not know existed.
2: No, I I think he's sticking with the. He's he's not a racist. I I I think these modern day racists have been moved. Uh, closer to the modern years, this century, to uh, not be proud of being a racist, you know. Back back in the Wallace days, they brag about it. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a you know a racist. I don't want to do this. Now those those who are in power or in the public arena um, weren't comfortable with doing that until. Trump entered on Trump. But that's another story. We'll, we'll, we'll get, get to Trump. that later.
1: I have to ask you a question. Yes. Uh, Monroe is our, our resident expert on white people, uh, yes. having lived and worked among them his entire
2: life. No, well, not my, my entire professional life. I grew up correct. in a segregated Gary, in yes. a segregated community. I, did, I didn't know a white person socially until I went to Indiana University.
1: That is correct. I said yeah. correct it. Uh, his entire adult life, I would say. So having uh, lived among them and worked with them for his entire adult life, you've learned a thing or two.
2: I'm the Jane Goodall of white people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He studied them in their natural habitat.
2: Exactly.
1: (laughs) It's the white people at the Tribune. You didn't know. Monroe was watching you when you were walking around. He was observing and taking notes and studying you. So having uh, observed uh, white people uh, for all these years, Monroe, it's been a few years since you were a kid in uh, segregated Gary, Indiana, having never met a white person. Right. When, when, in your humble opinion. Yes. When John Gruden says, quote, there's not a racist bone in my body, knowing that he's written all these emails that are racist. Do you think in his mind he believes what he says, that he's not racist, that somehow or other you can write racist emails and not be racist? Monroe Anderson, having studied the white person for all these years, your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah. Uh, yes. He. He. I, th- I. think he really thinks that he's not a racist. You know, um, because the, the 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 goals have have moved. If you aren't um, saying nigger 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 every other word, and you don't care if they sit on the front at the front of the bus or not, it's okay if they're in the same restaurant. Maybe you don't want them at the next table, but if they're in the same restaurant, that's okay with you. Then you think that you are progressive, um, and you, you you don't think that you, you you don't think that you're a racist. He probably has a black friend or two uh, along the Allen West um, uh, <laughs> line or something, and so he has somebody to sort of validate him. He, he'll say something racist, and that person won't say anything. Or might not in agreement with what he said, so um, I'm sure he doesn't think he's a racist. But you know, I'm sure Dick Dicka doesn't think he's a racist either. Um, but Richard Denton, we not back back in the 80s, just told me that Dicka had a lot of red on his neck. <laughs>
1: Dick, of course, being Mike Ditka, Maga Mike, as I like to call him, a right. coach exactly. of the Chicago Bears, who was oh, Maga long before it was fashionable. Uh, and this gets into one of my pet peeves about the NFL, which I write about from time to time. Uh, the amount of, how do I put it? casual bigotry that's uh, displayed over the years on a regular basis by people uh, like Ditka uh Oh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Hank Williams III, who was the, uh, he's a country western singer whose song led off Monday Night Football. Uh, and uh, they were, it was tolerated. Rush Limbaugh, for a while, I don't know if you remember this, was brought on by, I think it was CBS, to be a panelist on their uh, Sunday uh, NFL show. And then he finally had to step down after he, <laughs> Rush Limbaugh, was wrestling. do you remember this one, bro? where he was talking about, um, oh, the quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles, whose name is escaping me now. He comes from Chicago, a black man. And uh, he said that white people, white reporters won't criticize him, uh, even though they should, because they're afraid of being called racist. So there were, he was like, the argument was that this guy was getting a pass, uh, which is such a freaking ludicrous argument to make. Like, any anybody quarterbacks are just utterly upset, you know, uh, analyzed, uh, Monroe after every game, you know what I'm saying? There's the notion that someone's getting a pass is ridiculous. I've never seen it happen anywhere. So it just seems like there's so much casual bigotry. Hold well, on Monroe. I think you're, uh, we've lost your sound. Uh, Dennis is Monroe's sound you're on down? mute Monroe. Unmute that oh, sucker. There you, oh, go. I there you forgot.
2: go. I turned. Okay. Sorry about that. I <laughs> can remember. as I can remember when white sportscasters used to make the difference between white players and black players, where when a white player did something, it was a very intelligent thing they did. When a black player did it, well, he had this intuitive of uh, talent, this natural talent doing it. It wasn't because he thought about it or figured it out. It was because he was just born that way, a natural talent. And of course, that therefore no, none of them could be quarterbacks.
1: Yeah, that, uh, they weren't yeah. smart enough.
2: Yeah, right, exactly. And who was that guy um, who got fired because he said that um, if, if if they let blacks do much more football, there wouldn't be anything for them to do. White men to do. Oh
1: yeah. Well, that's now you're heading into Ben uh, Theory country, which I kind of share with uh, a certain wife of yours, Joyce Owens. Uh, now you're heading into our theory, uh, which is uh, that. Well, <laughs> I think I'll keep the Ben Joyce theory uh, to yeah, the side okay, for the yeah, moment. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> Don't want to embarrass Ben or Joyce. We <laughs> right. uh, subscribe to the same theory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I remember. I yeah, like you have to. um, it, it, blacks will completely take over everything.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think he's Italian.
1: Very bizarre situation, Monroe, yeah. in the NFL. And then you mentioned this earlier when we were talking about it. Uh, and it's, I, I want you to uh, go into it a little bit. Where you, black, uh, most of the players, I think 70% of the players are 70%, black. Yeah, 70% of the players are
2: black, Get, getting their brains knocked out. Risking uh, getting the football players' um, v- version of dementia later on in life, making these owners, these white owners, most of whom, not all, but most of whom, own teams just as a a, a like toy, like right? like they'd have a um, race cars or or a model T or whatever. Um, they they have a football team. I get, gives them something to do and they are a private club Hmm. if if uh dennis uh you and me put all our money together and tried to buy an nfl team they wouldn't sell it to us
1: (laughs) what a thought you me and dennis owing a uh, nfl team yeah (laughs) exactly (laughs) Yeah, it's a private club, and they have these very disparaging attitudes uh, about the players. And so going back uh, to one of the, my pet peeves for years, yeah, stopped- a-
2: okay, Okay, let, 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 me, let, me, let me make one other point, Ben. They, unlike the NFL, I mean, sorry, the NBA, which has a strong union, and they too have a, a bunch of black men making the money. But um, – Careers last much longer in the NBA than it does in the NFL. The average player, I think, lasts five years in, in the NFL, if they're lucky. So they don't, the players don't have, and there's more of them, so the players don't have the influence among the owners in the NFL that the players in the NBA have. And that does make a difference.
1: Yeah, and then the other thing uh, of to your point uh, is that contracts in the NBA are guaranteed against injury, whereas uh, in the NFL, a good chunk of a player's contract is non-guaranteed. So there's there's the money that's guaranteed, and then there's the rest of the contract which isn't guaranteed. Yeah. So a player can be dropped at any moment. Right, uh, and, and that's they, what. And
2: they are, and they are. Yes, no, they have a whole. You know, it, 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 they have a whole new, uh, no, a new breed, a, a new batch of players that are just coming out of college who are superstars in college, and so they they have an unending supply of talent at this point.
1: And that's why Monroe, uh, going back to Ditka, I thought about this, and I, I put this in uh, in a reader column once. I don't know if I ever shared this with you, but. He would say the most outrageous things all the time, right wing yeah. rhetoric. While right. he was coach of the Bear and he, Bears and he had and even afterwards when he was a media personality and beloved in the city of Chicago, the coach. Right. right. He would say outrageous stuff. I remember uh, when Carol Mosley Braun was running. For Senate back in the early '90s, uh, did endorse Rich Williamson, who was running against her. Yeah, uh, and he was so disparaging in his remarks about uh, Carol Mosley Braun, and he was so disparaging about it in his remarks about Clinton, Bill Clinton, who was running for president. And he said like it would be the worst thing that could happen to our country uh, if Clinton were elected or if Carol Mosley Braun was elected. I can't remember the exact thing, and I'm like thinking what like worse than slavery. Right. Worse than, uh, you know, the Civil War? Worse than Pearl Harbor? I mean, it's ridiculous rhetoric. And I was like, what if you were a, a black player on the Bears? Right. And this was your coach, and he's right. saying this nonsense. And then you have to, to go into, you know, to Hallis Hall and pretend that you really admire him. and
2: Or, or, or do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> And, and and knowing what he really is like. I've been it's in that con- movie before. <laughs> What's that? Said I've been in that movie before.
1: What with it, uh having, that, having to deal know, with
2: having some boss, a white boss who I knew was racist <laughs> and having to work for them and um suffer the consequences. Did you I, ever come- I, had, I had a general manager when I was at Channel 2 who was from Mississippi. And um, he, we would meet and talk about things. And And sometimes he, he like one time he said, um, he said, um, in Richmond, I think it was Richmond. And then he says, you know where the president is buried? He's talking about Lee.
1: You're kidding. He said this to you?
2: Yes. We just the two of us in the room. So how did you, he, how did you what respond? I, I ignored it. What, what could I do? Actually, the way I got back at him was he had two sons. Uh, one was a Minneapolis policeman. The mm-hmm. other was in the uh, had just joined the army. And so I said to him, I said, what did you do to your sons to make them get such dangerous jobs?
1: And his response? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> By the way, Tracy Bame from the Chicago Reader has joined us, publisher, co-publisher, I should say, of the Chicago Reader. Tracy, welcome to the show. Uh, and uh, we have a lot of reader talk uh, ahead of us because it's the 50th anniversary of the reader. And uh, Monroe, if Tracy's here. I'm also going to get some uh, media observations out of her as well. Uh, but before we completely leave this topic, Monroe, yes, and uh, man, maybe Tracy has something to add to this as well. Tracy, we've been talking about John Gruden, the uh, former coach of the Oakland Raiders, uh, who had to step down after The New York Times revealed dozens of emails that were misogynist, uh, homophobic, racist, (laughs) you name it. Uh, And somehow or other, he had two lives, uh, Tracy. He was able to uh, have a very high profile existence on national TV while he was writing these emails. Uh, And then he was like this private life. I don't know how many people he shared his thoughts, his real thoughts with. uh, And it caught up to him. Ah, uh, Monroe, you said before we began the show that you see a correlation between uh, the John Gruden and his uh, emails and the attitudes that he uh, expressed in in them and the elevation of Donald Trump and the Republican Party. And uh, what is that correlation?
2: I, I'm a, a, a too large a proportion of white America is racist. And um, we have progressed enough where they aren't bragging about it now. Uh, And and they try to disguise it, some of them. But um, they're still racist. They're still a a white supremacist supremacist mentality.
1: Well, I... um... It'd be curious to see if uh, MAGA comes to uh, John Gruden's defense, as they do so often, talking about his free his rights to free expression, uh, and his liberty. We'll be uh, very curious to see Monroe uh, if they make him.
2: uh, Well, MAGA in this case would be Fox. TV. Yes. Fox. So, yeah, so we'll, we'll see if we'll see your job
1: for the next week is to watch Fox. Uh, I don't have to watch it. uh, And then you can report back to me uh, later on. Uh, Tracy Bame, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm going to, I can't wait for all the other email dumps because there were other people on the other end of those emails that likely responded right back to him. So there's, there's going to be an endless, uh, I hope release of emails that are far more interesting than the alleged email scandals of Hillary Clinton, which were about usually ordering lunch and who to invite to events. Like who cares?
2: (laughs) Right. Uh,
1: Yeah, that's a a very good point, Tracy. I didn't make that earlier on uh, that. We've only so far seen John Gruden's emails. We've not seen the response that uh, he got. So we don't know, for instance, when he made uh, his remarks about Michael Sams, the first openly gay player in the National Football League, Uh, calling him a queer and say, why would you, why would you draft uh, someone like that? Uh, We don't know what the other person wrote back. Right. And that other person was uh, at the time would have been a high ranking official with the Washington football team. So you're right. Uh, Right. And you know, Tracy, they haven't revealed the York times obviously will not reveal its sources. So they've not revealed how they got the emails, but to your point, If they got John Gruden's emails, they probably can get you Allen's emails. That's the name of the guy, uh, Allen, the Washington official. So, and anybody else on that email train. So you're right, this story can kick around. All right, Tracy, uh, 50 years of the Chicago Reader, and uh, it's been on my mind when Monroe's clapping. Monroe and I are old enough to have been around in the 70s. Uh, when the when the reader uh, first came on the scene, uh, so why don't you talk a little bit about uh, how we're celebrating 50 years of the reader? Go ahead.
3: Yeah, we're doing a bunch of different things. Um, the actual 50th anniversary was October 1st. Uh, a few days later, the Newberry Library opened an exhibit that includes a lot of ephemera and a timeline um, about that. It's open through the third week of January, so people can just go down to to see it anytime during Newberry normal hours. Um, this month, our two issues in October, including the one out today, have look backs over across time. And today's issue, Mark Jacob did an origin story of the reader with the four founders. And they actually came into our office a few weeks ago for a photo shoot. Um, so there's a origin story, long, 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 one by Mark Jacob today. I'm sure more people will have input I've seen on Twitter to various parts of it history and a bunch of other different articles in this issue and the issue October 28th. That take deep dives into that history. We also are having house parties um, at various. We've had our first one last week at a at uh, Lola Wright and Nathan Wright's new um, landscape business, and we are going to have several more in-person events. Everything about the anniversary can be found at chicagoreader.com/50. Um, our press release, the house parties, we have merchandise like a we had a button design contest with Busy Beaver for a button for each of the five decades. And those are fantastic. So you can do a button pack We have our reader 50 mask, find out about the house parties. We also basically think we're gonna be celebrating throughout this whole next year. Because of COVID, we didn't wanna have one big gala event. So our goal is to end the year next October with some kind of large in-person party, not a sit down chicken dinner uh, kind of uh, audience for the reader, but some kind of big celebration. So lots of stuff throughout the next year.
1: And again, where can people find all the information if uh, they want to participate?
3: ChicagoReader.com slash five zero. Our merchandise is at ChicagoReader.com slash store, S-T-O-R-E. And then we've got lots of other information on the site um, as well on um, how people can donate. We're you know moving to this nonprofit model. We have 501c3 status with the IRS. We just have a few uh, things to finish up with the for-profit before the full transition happens. But we are accepting donations and grants and such to the, to the non-profit now. So the Reader Institute of Community Journalism is a 501c3. So people can donate at chicagoreader.com slash donate. Tr-
2: Tracy, how's the re- merchandise moving?
3: It's great. You know, right when COVID came out, we accelerated a lot of our ideas that we were going to maybe do long-term and we put out like an emergency coloring book with 50 artists and split the proceeds and that raised over forty wow, thousand dollars uh, twenty thousand going to the artists and um, we did a cookbook we did best of books including with Ben Jaravski, Leo Galil, Maya Dupašova, etc and uh, this year we've tried to slow it down a little because in response to COVID people were very generous they knew the emergency was there um, but we're doing less merchandise but trying to do really fun on brand 50th anniversary stuff. So the buttons, the reader mask, uh, we're, we just are putting out a map of um, that John Greenfield had worked on for restaurants in each of the Chicago 77 neighborhoods. So we're gonna have that map available soon. But so they, it does well, it's, we do everything very low risk so we don't print like thousands of anything. Uh, we do a limited amount and then when it sells out, we move on to the next thing. Um, it's really partly a visibility and partly a fundraiser.
1: Well, that t-shirt you're wearing, folks can't see this. Obviously, I can only hear our podcast, can't see it. But uh, I got a, a t-shirt like it. It's, uh, and uh, I got, actually, I was um, uh, in, in California because um, I'm a grandfather now, Tracy, as you know. Okay. And uh, I'm helping my uh, daughter and her husband and uh, just basically trying to stay out of the way, really, to tell you the truth. But uh, anyway, I was walking on the beach and... I'm wearing my reader T-shirt, uh, that the, that same black one with the gold. Hey, man, I'm from Chicago. Some guy comes up to
2: me. Yeah, the reader. <laughs>
1: uh, which leads me to this. Uh, Monroe and I can reminisce about the reader from a different perspective than you. We're a little older than you, Tracy. Uh, you were a kid growing up in Chicago uh, in the 70s and in the 80s, a uh, Lane Tech graduate. And uh, I know you come from a journalistic background, or at least your uh, your parents are journalists. So talk yeah. about what the the legacy to Reader was for you uh, as a kid growing up in Chicago in the 70s and the 80s.
3: Yeah, I mean, when I, so I was born in 1963, so I was eight when the, the Reader was founded in 1971. But I was really aware of newspapers as a kid. My mom was at first at the well. She was at a bunch of different community papers uh, in the suburbs and city, and then was at the Tribune when she met my stepfather in the early '60s, um, early to mid '60s, and then she later was at the Chicago Defender. So newspapers were just in our home. Newspapers and magazines. I had a wall of newspaper banners on, uh, in in my closet, like just the titles. I loved fonts, um, and I just was enamored with the whole business of newspapers. I would make my own family newsletter starting when I was ten. So the reader was among this hodgepodge of just newspapers, newsprint and magazines throughout my childhood. I think I first became more aware of it in high school. I was in uh, Lane Tech from 76 to 80 and um, started to, to read it and be aware of it. I wasn't really one of the hip, cool kids, so I wasn't trying to get in clubs or anything. I couldn't even pass when I was 30 to get into a bar, so much less at underage. So then when I came back from college in 84, that's when I really started to be aware of how important the reader was. And um, in, in the whole ecosystem, what I cared about, progressive politics and and uh, even somewhat LGBT stuff back then, they didn't do a lot of gay stuff, but when they did it, they did it well and, and did it from a, a relatively non-biased perspective compared to the mainstream media. So I've been aware of it probably mostly since 1984.
1: And,
2: uh... hey, ben, let me tell you this. I met Tracy when she was a preteen. <laughs> um, her father, Steve Pratt, we worked together at the Tribune. And what he'd do every Thanksgiving is invite all of the, the journalists who had to be working on Thanksgiving to Thanksgiving dinner. And so I, I went to his house, and I think it was 74, I went to their house. It was 74, 75, I'm pretty sure it was... 74 uh, so I, I've known her since she was a, a little one
3: even shorter Yeah. right exactly
1: 12 <laughs> uh, year old uh, Tracy Bain yeah I've seen those pictures that Tracy posts from time to time on Facebook and yes Tracy you're absolutely correct when you were in Lane Tech you looked like you are about 10 uh, <laughs> and the same thing for me though by the way when I was at uh, I was high school as a kid man I looked so young I was like <laughs> so young <laughs> I, uh, uh, Karen Hawkins, who's uh, my editor at The Reader, co-publisher with Tracy, asked me to write a reminiscence about The Reader. So I, I did a little piece uh, about it that's in this issue as well. And, you know, Tracy, I, there was a, a vibe. When I first started reading The Reader in the 70s, uh, and uh, some, I would have been uh, just starting college, or just still in high, at the end of my, high, my distinguished high school career, <laughs> uh, I picked up on this vibe that the reader had, and I'd love to get your thoughts I'm on Monroe's thoughts about this as well. And it, to me, it was the reader in the 70s had this kind of cocky attitude of the alternative paper where it wasn't of the mainstream so it wasn't going to articulate a mainstream point of view and it almost as though it was proud of the fact that it was not mainstream, if you get what i'm saying and so it it almost was like i don't want to say elitist but it it kind of had a uh you know a a put down attitude toward what was considered mainstream uh news coverage or a worldview and that really impressed me you get what i'm saying i just like yeah they know these guys are all phonies and hypocrites and they're putting it out there and and i really can pick up on that uh and that's driven me so much for my journalistic career from the 80s on Uh, i've been writing for the reader that was something I picked up uh, with the reader, uh, Tracy. I'll start with you. Do, do you do you know what I'm talking about? Do you think it has that same kind of that's? The, do you did, did, were you attracted to that same sensibility in the paper?
3: Yeah, I mean, I still always felt it was from very much a white lens, um, a white Chicago lens, looking in at other communities. Even if it was from a good politics, it was still a pretty one dimensional perspective. Um, and so I think that's been something that Karen and I have really been aware of is, is trying to tilt the lens and expand the lens and have different lenses. Um, so I, I did enjoy it. I liked it and, and certainly appreciated the really terrific journalism and editors and art designers and everything around it. But... Um, it, and it did much better on race issues and police brutality and all sorts of things over the decades than the mainstream. But it still felt that it could be that one step further to truly be representative of Chicago um, through the writers, the vendors, the you know the the way the stories were approached um, was mainly from that white lens.
1: Monroe, your thoughts?
2: Yeah, and I, I agree with with, with uh, Tracy one hundred percent about that. I never wrote for the reader. I I loved reading it because they did do a lot of interesting stories, I thought, uh, but I I never wrote for them. One reason, of course, is that because it was a newspaper, that would have been a no-no with the Tribune management. And and because it was a liberal newspaper, it would have been a (laughs) no-no-no-no-no from the management. I did freelance for Dollars and Cents, which was this black business publication. I did a piece on a couple of pieces in the Chicago Magazine one on uh, Mr. T uh, and one on Reverend Thomas Dorsey. Uh, so I did some freelance, but I, I never did any with the reader. And plus, the stories, most of the stories I read were so long that I'd have to, take, I'd have, I'd have to take a vacation to put the story Stop together.
1: It. Okay. <laughs> Do you know, Tracy, how many times I've heard that in my life? Being read a reader writer? I, 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 <laughs> like, I can take people saying, Ben, the reader's a north side paper. Ben, the reader has a white perspective. And by the way, Tracy, to your point, I remember once the reader is probably not a memory that's in the, 50th anniversary issue, but uh, it, it ran a cartoon that was uh, just mocking Harold Washington and uh, this is after he had died, and there was protest. Dorothy Tillman and other uh, activists showed up at the reader outside the reader office protesting. I remember this. And then, coincidentally, to your point, Tracy, I was doing a story, a uh, neighborhood news story. I used to do neighborhood news back in the day uh, on the far south side and a bunch of residents they were like, let's talk about this. Why should we trust you?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm like, that's a great question. And I, you should ask that question anytime you ever deal with a journalist, not just me. <laughs> yeah. Why do you trust anybody? Yeah, I, I think they kind of like my response. And they go, well, we have no choice, so we're going to have to trust you. <laughs> uh, but I, um, I I think I could deal with a lack of trust among black readers more than I could deal with people going, you know, I used to read the reader, Pen, but the stories are so long, I don't read them anymore. And
2: I'm like, what? No, right. no I, didn't say, I didn't say I wasn't reading it for the list. I was saying I didn't want to write it for the list. <laughs> so, yeah, I had to put in so many hours. Or like I mean, you can't make that stuff up in a newspaper. You have to actually interview people.
1: <laughs> All right, Tracy, Payne. so answer that question long-form journalism. Do you think it's there's a place for it in civilization or are you sympathetic to readers who say, oh, that story is just too long for me? Go ahead, Tracy.
3: Well, we don't run that kind of length cover story more than probably three or four times a year now. Most stories are well under 5,000 words, many of them under 1,500 words. Um, but those long investigative pieces, Maya Dukmasova's last one before she left us um, to go to another outlet, she it was know uh, uh, many many thousands of words and uh, four weeks after appeared the person that she wrote about who'd been on in jail for one of several alleged crimes he had an appeal hearing and four minutes in that those charges were dropped um and there's no way that the deep investigative work that maya had done didn't feed into that um effort so i do think there's a time for it i don't think it should be gratuitous or just indulgent to the reporters and editors working on it, I think it, it. There are times when 20,000 words is what is needed, like my investigation into to, um, evictions a couple years ago that took 18 months. So I do think long-form journalism, like long reads, promotes online, is necessary. The Atlantic and other publications that do these kind of deep dives, but the vast majority of what we do is not that. We have many little reviews and capsules. Of, of music and theater, et cetera. And we have 1,500 word to 5,000 word features. It just depends on what it needs. I don't think we should be artificially cutting or lengthening what a story really needs.
1: Uh, fair enough. Uh, I, uh, I'm i very sympathetic to the long article lead go. I have a hard time reading them on, on a phone. I could tell you that right now. <laughs> uh, Tracy, reading a, a, a really long story on the phone is difficult for me. All right, let's talk a little about the future of uh, journalism in general, uh, you come on this show several times and talked about this—the uh, uh, the challenges of trying to uh, keep a paper going through ad revenue in this day and age. You've talked at length about that, uh, going a not profit route. You've talked about that, and we see uh, NPR and the Sun Times of uh, and the Sun Times making news. Uh, with a possible merger, completely caught me off guard, uh, Tracy. I told you that before we went on the air. I did not see that come. Not that anybody would have told me about it in advance, but I didn't see that coming. Um, so, what's your uh, what's your what's your sense of that uh, that new possible marriage between the Sun Times and uh, BEC? Do you think it could work?
3: I do think it can work. What I I most want to happen is to use this as an opportunity to leverage the great amount of wealth in both foundations that are public and private, that are donor advised, that there, there are, there's tens of billions of dollars of wealth in this Chicago region, of which probably less than 0.01% of it goes to journalism in any form, either as a donor uh, from individuals or from public and private foundations, donor advised funds, et cetera. So my push on this with anybody who asks is that, great, let's put more coins in the ocean now because we're about where we can lift the boats with the current capacity of the foundation universe here. We need to find more foundations to do more rather than rely on the typical players that have been trying to prop up local journalism on their own. We have to add to the universe. So the people that donate to BEZ and have the Chicago Sun-Times I believe, need to be pressured to see this universe around them. I don't think they're antagonistic towards it. I think many of them are just ignorant to it in terms of there being dozens. We have 69 members of the Chicago Independent Media Alliance that The Reader launched a couple years ago. That's only partial to to all the other community media that exists and it won't take much to save community media compared to the lift that it's gonna take to save the Sun-Times. So I think this is an opportunity to say, okay, great. You do that, but you do that in in kind of concert with the rest of community media, and we can lift everybody by putting more coins in the ocean. And so that's what my advocacy is going to be on this whole topic. Uh, we've been pushing at the reader for a journalism pooled fund in Chicago to be hosted at a foundation where many family and other foundations can put money into a pooled fund so that they that money can be filtered into community media by the experts, as opposed to every family foundation having a journalism program officer. So that's my, I've been advocating that for a couple of years now, this is an opportunity to do it. So we're meeting with funders and foundations and all sorts of people saying, let's take advantage right now of this window when people understand the role of journalism and democracy and bring more resources to the table to help easy the sometimes and the whole rest of community media. We do not want to lose the black press, the Latino press, the Polish press, the Korean press, the reader, everything else in saving. Sometimes we need to save both all of them
1: monroe do you uh, think there's room for all these different presses in chicago uh there
2: there there. there once was uh, although on, on online media has has changed the game completely i mean uh why 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 pay for the milk when you can get the cow for free uh yeah that's that that's the problem with this is uh the, young people in particular have been conditioned to get their media just by going online. And that's it. Um, you know, and, and going back to the reader for a minute, I personally attributed the reader for the development of Chicago's vast theater community. Cause they used to run that section where, where you could find out where plays and what, what have you going. And so if you had a storefront, and, a, and some friends who did theater, you could literally launch a theater. And sometimes, like if it was, say, the Steppenwolf, it would grow into something really important. But even, I mean, there, at one time there were 200 theaters in Chicago, of, of the Chicago area of, of one, one type or another. And I, I, I particularly think the reader did that just single-handedly.
1: Yeah, that's that that's part of uh, the reader's legacy that I I didn't participate in. I must uh, tell both of you, uh, I used to I don't think I've ever written a theater or a rock and roll story for the reader. And back in the day, Tracy, uh, that's the other thing. The the music section in the reader uh, was so powerful, so important, so significant, at least on the north side. Uh, And it was just a powerful voice in it. Uh, and yeah, I, I never participated in that, Um uh, Tracy got to ask you about Facebook and its impact. And I haven't picked your brain on this one, uh, since the uh, Facebook scandal, uh, has erupted since the whistleblower went on 60 minutes. I'm utterly obsessed, uh, with Frances Hagen and that, uh, her story and what she had to say and what she revealed about the Facebook model, uh, and how Facebook figured out that they could make a fortune by just giving people whatever information the people wanted that they, that their computers picked up and detected that people would click on this. And so they just kept feeding it to him and feeding it to him and feeding to him. Uh, and um, so what's the impact of the sort of algorithms uh, model that Facebook has made such a fortune off on uh, journalism today?
3: Well the impact of especially Google and Facebook and Instagram on on the advertising model is what we most profoundly see every day. I mean more than 80 percent if not more um, of most of advertising budgets in this country go to online digital um, mega sites like Facebook and Google um, and so the shift in advertising dollars has had the most negative effect on media. In terms of kind of curation of the news I think it calls out the need for those editorial gatekeepers, but better gatekeepers, right? The gatekeepers of the past were mostly straight, cisgender, white men who kept out a lot of other kinds of stories. So gatekeepers inherently can have biases and problems, including those by machines. (laughs) Machines are programmed by people. Um, and so, so all the, there's always going to be bias, right? But when you have this incredible algorithm power of Facebook, Google and others, um, you know, Instagram targeting, you know, teen girls with image issues and, you know, it's just, it's horrendous, right? It's like, as if we put alcohol instead of water in our pipes, you know, it's like who nobody's regulating them. It's going everywhere and it's poisoning people those who can self-regulate and self-curate and only take a sip of it, great. All uh, power to you, but the vast majority of people that are vulnerable are being taken advantage of by these algorithms, you know? And so it is is—it is something that needs watching. It needs regulating. Um, I, I hope the cat's not fully out of the bag on this. Um, I'm not sure. And I saw something where, uh, you know, only 13% percent Of their money, um, watching these problems is spent outside of the United States. Um, so they are watching it here better, which is relative. But that the the amount of misinformation influencing other countries is not really being watched in, in other languages. They're not doing a good job of that. So we're toppling governments uh, through Facebook. They're toppling you know all sorts of democracy around the world. Um, and it's I don't know if they can fix it right because we're just the U.S. That it comes from everywhere, all of the problems. And yet WhatsApp and other things are like utilities for so many millions of people around the world. So it's it's a real difficult solution and, and Congress is late to the table. I'm not sure if they can do much about this worldwide problem.
1: Well, Monroe and I talk about the political uh, ramifications of this. Uh, and we're probably going to be heading into a, na- a, natural, a national political conversation. Um, we'll let you go from there, Tracy. I don't want to have to burden you with uh, getting into uh, the ins and the outs of uh, national politics. But I will ask you about this. Monroe and I talk a lot about the different critiques that the right and the left have about Facebook and social media in general. And so, so much of what MAGA complains about Facebook uh, and Twitter and Instagram, I don't buy at all. But they're, they treat it as though there's this. You talk about a gatekeeper. Like the gatekeeper is our liberals or lefties who are preventing yeah. MAGA from getting their views out, and so that they're the victims. They play the victim card, which boggles my mind that they actually get away with it. They believe it. Uh, And so that's their critique.
2: Well, Uh, but if you if you if you look at what the right wing media is doing and all those millions of people that live in that bubble, then anything outside of that is um, not right because they're lying to their people they the, the 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 foxes and the q and um rush when he was alive i mean they were giving them a constant stream of lies and that was their reality so when they're presented with the real reality that doesn't make any sense to them whatsoever that's not that couldn't possibly be true because they didn't hear it on fox
1: yeah mm-hmm. Well, that's to my point. Like, I don't know how you can, quote unquote, reform this process if the right and the left, their Democrats, and Republicans are coming in from two different vantage points. So on one hand, my view as a lefty or a liberal, whatever, is that you have to clean it up so that they're not presenting obvious falsehoods. MAGA's point of view is you have to let go of all filters. Otherwise, it's censorship. And so when I look at those contrasting viewpoints of what uh, is expected of government in regards to regulating Facebook, uh, Tracy Monroe, it's like so many other issues today. I don't see a convergence that would satisfy uh, either side or both sides. Tracy, your thoughts?
3: Well, yeah. I mean, it feels quaint to think of crying fire in a theater, yelling fire in a theater, right? Like the the mass of this universe now that they occupy is almost unregulatable. And I don't, I don't know, um, you know, anybody's intent. You can't know anybody's intent. I I know people that work at Facebook that try to stop this funnel of hate, but it is a mixed bag because if they get considered a public utility, it almost might be worse because then the right wing will say that it, you know, it needs to be an open funnel of hell um, of communication so you know I'm just it's way above my pay grade to figure out how this gets solved but I do think there has to be some responsibility as publishers we're responsible for content that that gets out there and we have to have libel lawyers and all that kind of stuff we have regulation of ourselves through the law right it's not like we're regulated in the courts but we could be if we do something that crosses a line And, and these Facebook and others don't seem to have any there seems to be no responsibility uh, that we can hold them to.
1: All right, Tracy, we're going to let you go because uh, Monroe you. and I are feeling the urge to have a national uh, political conversation. One last time, <laughs> okay. uh, just tell folks, give us uh, the information they want, to, uh, more information about the reader's 50th anniversary, upcoming events, et cetera.
3: ChicagoReader.com slash five zero, ChicagoReader.com slash store, or ChicagoReader.com slash donate. Thanks everybody.
1: Take okay. care, Tracy. Bye, Tracy. Tracy. Dane, co-publisher of the Chicago Reader. All right, Monroe. Uh, before we head out the door, let's get a little political talk in, and uh, we'll talk about January sixth. Uh, that was the insurrection. Uh, I watched it with you. I watched it on your face. I love telling people the story that we were on the air live, and you had your TV on, and the look you're like. I urge folks, by the way, go check out that. That's a pretty funny thing, Oh my god, right. <laughs> they're going, they're, you wouldn't believe what's going on. I was. Right. Going in your face. That's
2: when they were climbing the walls, yeah, and breaking the windows. So here we are, Monroe. How
1: many months later? It's oh my goodness, it's nine months later. Yes, almost ten months later. Right. Uh MAGA has totally changed. Uh, the the, the storyline and now the storyline is that democrats are picking on them right. basically right maga's doing what it does best crying playing the victim card which is so funny because they all they do is talk about how liberals are snowflakes yes. and the biggest snowflakes in america as far as i could tell are maga right because every time you even criticize them they start Talk about censorship, and you know, and they they're picked on for their beliefs, et cetera, and so forth. Now they've turned it into this crusade, a political crusade where they won't abide by congressional subpoenas. Uh, Stephen Bannon, of all people, is advising the former uh, aide top aid, you know political aide to Donald Trump is advising uh, Donald Trump's uh, former uh, employees don't turn over your documents, uh, to con- congressional investigators. How far do you think they're going to push this Monroe? Uh,
2: I think they're going to push it until they go to jail. And then, and then, they'll find Jesus at that point. But, but, and, and I think, I think they're going to jail. I, 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 I think the house Democrats with their, their committee and with, um, Ms. Cheney backing them up are going to be tough as nails this is going to be one instance where Democrats act like Republicans and they're going to take names and collect dues and that will be a good thing because they, when Trump was in office they could ignore the subpoenas because it would go to bars DOJ and Barr would look at it and say, ho, oh, ho, ho, isn't this funny? And it's Charleston in file 13. Uh, the Democrats are going to be very serious about this. They're going to make criminal charges because crimes were committed.
1: So you think they're, uh, Bannon, Bannon just got out of quote-unquote jail.
2: Trump gave him a get-out-of-jail-free car. Unbelievable. Yeah, but Trump can't do it anymore. Trump Trump is worried about his own get-out-of-jail-free car.
1: (laughs) But Monroe, let's just, I mean, the gall of Steve Bannon is just amazing. He got caught in some scam. Right. He was uh, allegedly abusing money that was donated for various Republican causes, got caught in that. Uh, Trump, let him go, you're right, Uh, commuted a sentence or whatever uh, before he could actually get thrown in jail. Now he's right back at it.
2: Right. (laughs) And this time he's not going to be able to uh, wiggle his way out. So your sense
1: of it, nine months later, do you think the Republicans have been successful at flip-flopping uh, What it went down uh, January 6th? Or are they merely playing to a core, their small group? Their flip, they
2: flip-flopped it among their crowd, their mob. Because if you remember, when the, when the insurrection was happening, the MAGA crowd was saying that those that weren't there wearing the Trump T-shirts and MAGA stuff. But but the audience who was watching it said that this was Black Lives Matter and Antifa posing as MAGA people to, get, to give the MAGAs. And that didn't last very long because, you know. Uh, We got the pictures and the movies, so you couldn't continue with that. So now what they're doing is saying, well, it was that one day or really wasn't that big a deal. It was a a few protesters that got out of hand. Uh, So they're trying to change the story to that. Well, except I think it's uh, 25% of Republicans – Justify the violence because we were stealing the election from Trump, and so it was um, by any means necessary. Which is twenty
1: five percent. Damn, that sounds about right. Yeah, and that's twenty five percent controls the Republican Party. So that's where they're at right now. That's that's that twenty five percent controls the Republican Party.
2: Yeah, Uh, yeah.
1: and that's the real hardcore hardcore. Uh, And then it could be like John Gruden types who believe it, but don't say it publicly.
2: Right. Oh, there are a lot of those. Yeah. yeah. So what we have to do is just be on the warpath. Not physically, but media, just keep repeating the truth to beat down the, the big lie. Just We just have to stay at it. And we have got to hold those responsible who are responsible.
1: All right. uh, We'll switch to uh, Joe Biden, get a Joe Biden update before we head out the door. And uh, it's been very um, difficult for me to take Monroe, the vacillation, uh, the the Democrats sort of incapable of sticking to uh, one package or another. When it comes to infrastructure, when it comes to uh, their, the social agenda, the pressure on them because of mansion and cinema is forcing them to to uh, uh, whittle away uh, okay. at their programs. They still haven't passed anything. They're unsure if they're willing the, Demo- to, uh, the
2: Democrats have made the make mistake that the Democrats keep doing, is they let the Republicans name the game. And so the Republicans are talking about money and making it sound like it's a big deal, what have you. And the Democrats have been arguing with them about whether that was enough money or too much money, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of every every Democrat in office in D.C. and everybody in all the states should be talking about what you would be getting. If this bill goes through this human infrastructure bill goes through, they should be naming um, different people should be naming different prospects of the aspects of it. But that that should be the story, not how much money is going to cost or anything like that, but just how good it's going to be for you, for America. And they should just be naming it and, and going into great detail on what what will be in there. Of course, part of the problem is it hasn't been written completely. These are this is uh, an outline with everybody wishing what they want because they've been fighting over the money. Yeah, and it's crazy.
1: Well, I I don't see right now. It's things can change, but I don't see right now uh, that unity that is necessary uh to, to to do what you said i just don't see it uh and it seems like uh a cinema christen cinema her behavior is more and more bizarre all the time and i had this conversation with david ferris uh, last week it's just kind of obvious to me that she really is a republican
2: or she got bought i think she was she got bought off because she she had one position for the longest. And then, then one day, oh, my God, I have seen the light. It yeah. should be this other position. <laughs> what was that on, on, on climate change, I think? Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes.
1: Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I just, I, I wanted to say this, that the people who say she's like John McCain are really missing uh, the point. John McCain, by and large, was a right-wing Republican, and I I watched John McCain's career from the get-go, and I I liked I kind of there were parts aspects of his personality that I liked. You know, he had a sense of humor. I appreciated that, but essentially, he was a right-wing Republican. Right, Monroe, right. and so I if if she was the equivalent of John Mc, McCain. She would be a uh, a Bernie Sanders Democrat. Yeah, that's that's the equivalent. She would be on the left of the Democratic Party, right? Or at the very least, she at the very yeah. least she would be your basic bread and butter uh, Richard Durbin Democrat.
2: Right. Now she's trying to be McCain in a skirt. She's trying to be a Republican McCain. Yes. She's. Try- well, not McCain. Was a Republican. Republican.
1: Yeah, right. She's not that's John McCain she, of the Democrats. Yeah. She's yeah, John McCain.
2: Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. No, she's trying to be John McCain in a skirt. He was a Republican. A he Republican. Was a Republican. Right. It. And, and and but she's she 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 has seized upon the whole Maverick identity. And, yeah, and, but, that, uh, but that's the part that I shakes my head. Right.
1: John McCain was a maverick, quote, right. on things like uh, campaign finance reform. One aspect right. of a whole he was for tax breaks for the wealthy. He was against expanding uh, health care. He was for more military, sp- way more military spending. You know, he was like for charter schools. He was Republican.
2: Right. And the only reason he 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 voted for Obamacare was uh, he gave the th- uh, thumbs down to the Republicans because he's given the finger up to Trump.
0: Personally. Yeah,
1: you know? he saved for what it's worth. He saved the Republican Party almost, you know, because he it, was, it would have been political suicide to take away Obamacare at that point in time. Yeah, And so the Republicans got the best of both worlds with that one, Monroe. And you and I have talked about this. Yeah. They got to pound their chest yeah. against Obamacare. So their base get fired up because the base hates anything related to Barack Obama. Yeah. Which is really twist. It goes back to John Gruden. God, I wonder what John Gruden had it, to say about Barack Obama. Ra- it
2: goes back to racism. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what it goes back to. I mean, that's where they are. Uh And because if if you notice, they they aren't talking about Obamacare anymore. That's not one of their issues. Now they're talking about the border and all 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 these um, not white people getting in. And um, what is their other critical
1: race theory?
2: Critical race theory. Yes. So they and and, um, that Trump Trump actually won the election and. Biden is not really the president. Yeah, those are their three issues. Yeah,
1: uh, you're right. They forgot because uh, they know that Obamacare is a. Uh, they're trying to undo Obamacare is a losing
2: uh, right.
1: proposition because people you give people something they want it
2: right. You know what I'm saying? They don't
1: right. want it to, right.
2: Exactly. Uh, it's it hard right. to take something that was good for you or, or people yeah. away from them. And the thing with. um, the infrastructure, the reason they want to stick with the money, the Republicans, because if you go into detail on what you get with the, the, the human infrastructure um, law, then they would lose, they, most Republicans like what's in the package yeah. individually and collectively. But, but they're being told that it's going to gonna make their children poor and um, turn sh- uh, America into a, uh, a communist country and other run-of-the-mill Republican lies.
1: All right, we'll close with a Biden update. Uh, the Washington Post, I now read the Washington Post on a regular basis. I have to admit it's pretty entertaining. Yeah. Uh, is... Uh, really been pounding this drum for a while. Joe Biden is in trouble. The polls are really, really bad. And Monroe Anderson has a different take on that, on the polls and Joe Biden. Uh, So Monroe, close with your theories, your viewpoint on the current public opinion polls.
2: Well, the the current opinion poll, singular, Quinnipiac. It was an outlier and it had Biden's um, uh, approval rating at 38. The rest of the polls have him in the high 40s. He's less than he was, but he's still much greater than, well, greater, not much greater, but greater than Trump ever got. So, and the main, Biden has not had a good month. Uh, People liked him because they they thought that he had a handle on COVID. And then you got the outbreaks in, in the southern states because a whole bunch of ignoramuses won't get the vaccine. And and and, that, and so they're dying. You know, they'd rather die than uh, get get the um, vaccine. And that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Then the, the um, withdrawal from Afghanistan didn't help. Although if you look at it objectively, it was, it, it was a very successful withdrawal, but it didn't look pretty. It looked bad on, on TV. Yeah, so you I, have, and, then, and then you have in, inflation rearing its ugly head because the supply chain is busted. Uh, it's, uh, for example, with, with a lot of the goods that we're not getting and the prices are going up on, uh, we don't have tr- uh, trucks. Once, uh, the, 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 you have these ships from Asia and places like that. with all kind of goodies on them, but we don't have enough truckers to distribute mm. the goods throughout the, the nation. It,
1: so your, your basic take is that uh, it's not uh, it's not as dismal as The Washington Post makes it seem. Uh, and we're pretty much where we were. S- six months ago. We're like in a stall period. We're in a
2: stall. The COVID is going down. Mm. Um, you, you have the booster shot coming. Um, uh, five to 12-year-olds are going to be getting um, their vaccinations. So COVID is, is now, will be, be pretty much under control and, unless you get a new variant. and you know, And who knows about that. Uh, although uh, theoretically, at least so far, the vaccines take care of all variants yeah. right now.
1: Well, I'll close uh, with this. we'll close no. with this line that uh, D.L. Huey just posted on Instagram is pretty funny. Vaccine mandates are causing teachers who don't believe in science to quit, <laughs> nurses who don't believe in medicine to quit and cops who don't believe in public safety to quit. I'm failing to see the downside to this.
2: yeah man, he, he can't be I'm, funny
1: yeah and man is funny man DL, <laughs> D.L. He's been getting me through this stuff uh, and he loves Dave Chappelle ladies and gentlemen D.L. He really loves Dave Chappelle we'll keep that topic for another time Monroe Anderson thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us appreciate it as always and uh, if I get I'll just tell you this if, we, if, I, if I can hook up with Bennett Johnson we're going to have one hell of a show next week Monroe I'll be back in Chicago and Bennett will be on with us uh, we'll be talking about all kinds of things, Muhammad Ali related. Uh, all right, Monroe, thank you very much. I also want to thank Tracy Bain, uh, publisher of the Chicago Reader, for talking about the 50th anniversary of the Chicago Reader and other media news. And, of course, the man, myth, the legend, the pride of all Illinois, without whom the show be possible. And as Monroe and Tracy will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him White Lightning. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody.
0: Uh, No Gators yet, though. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered Internet at
3: home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home... Yes, go! ...or attending one live... Go! You can do more
1: without spending more. Learn how to save at Cox.com/internet.
0: Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability, as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H 2023. Results may vary. Not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.